people are so concerned about many things. They're fearful about many things. But I want you to know today that God's Word does not lack any power because we're live streaming and nobody's in the audience. The beautiful thing about it is, is God has everything under control. He absolutely has a plan for your life, and He has a plan for my life. And one of the most important things is when we face a trial, it's not the issue of the trial, it's the issue of our response to the trial. Because not long ago we gathered in this room and it was packed as we mobilized people when Harvey hit to minister to our community. And one of the things we did was we had a plan and we had an action plan and we were packed in here and we mobilized people to minister in this community and we were ministers of the gospel. Church looked differently after Harvey. Well, this is the next thing that we're facing. Nobody even remembers Harvey. This is the next event that we're facing and trials are multicolored. But let me tell you something about God. God's grace is multicolored too. Today we're not meeting in here. We're meeting in homes. We're meeting out there. We're practicing what we call social distancing. But God is ever near. He has a plan. He has a purpose. And so, listen, we're going to still, we're going to wash our hands, but we're going to continue to wash feet. And we're going to continue to serve people. So one of the things about prayer that you want to remember is prayer is initiated by God, not by man. So this is a national day of prayer that our president has commenced. And one of the beautiful things about Scripture is every day is a national day of prayer for those of us that are believers in Jesus Christ. Because the Bible says to pray without ceasing. I'm grateful that our leadership has called us to prayer. But we as Christians, as we face trials, we're already trusting. We're already praying. So before the trial hits, we've already been praying. We've already been trusting. Now we ask God, what is it that you would have me to do in the midst of this trial? How can I serve maybe my family? Some of you are sitting with some people that you haven't been sitting with lately, and God has allowed a trial to cause you to be able to be with your family today. And some of you have neglected ministry to your family, and they're right in front of you. So ask God to speak to you today about what He wants you to do as we continue to serve we continue to wash feet, and we continue to do what God has called us to do. I want to read a passage of Scripture. Psalm chapter 11 is a psalm that was written by David for times like this. Uncertain times, times when we really don't know what to do, we can trust God. When the trial comes, we can still trust God. Because it's not our faith that's operating, it's his faith that's operating in us. So David talks about today trusting God in untrusting times. Psalm chapter 11. Here's what the text says. And these psalms were to be sung. So here's what the text says. In the Lord I put my trust. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bow they make ready their arrow on the string that they may shoot secretly at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain coals, Fire and brimstone and burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous, verse 7. He loves righteousness and his countenance beholds the upright. 
Let's ask God today, as I teach, you pray for me. As I teach, I am praying for you. We are trusting and totally depending on God to do something that only he can do. And I want you to be encouraged today. I don't want you to live in fear because we know the God of faith. We can trust him. Even when we can't see, we can still trust him. And that's where David was. David in this particular text was on the run. Many scholars believe that he was on the run from uh, Absalom, his own son. Some believe he was on the run from King Saul. Whatever it is, he was a person that was on the run. He had a tendency to want to flee rather than face things with trust and faith. But one of the beautiful things that he does at the beginning of this song, and it's so encouraging to me, is he says this, in the Lord I put my trust. Notice the preposition, in the Lord. Not in a religion, but in a relationship. In the Lord, I put my trust. The word trust could mean refuge. So there's a, there's a shelter. There's a castle, if you will. When you put your faith and trust in the Lord, you live in a castle. And the castle is the shelter that the Lord provides for you. So rather than running in fear in different situations, no matter what the trial is, we run to him. We don't want to run away from him because the situation doesn't encourage me to trust. But God, who is in control of the situation, encourages me to trust him in a time like this. So in the Lord, I put my trust. Let me tell you what this word trust means. It means to attach yourself to someone. It means to attach yourself. So the idea would be that David attached himself to a covenantal God. Uh, the word uh, Lord here is the word for Jehovah, is the word for Yahweh. It's used some 6,823 times in the scripture. It means the self-existent one. It means a covenant God. It means Jehovah. It means the Lord. It means that he needs no one to hold him up. It is the isness of God. He is totally in control. He's totally sovereign. And the good news for us today is that God's not wringing his hands up in heaven wondering what's happening. He already knows. And he is a God who uses trials to draw out the trust in people who will totally attach themselves to him. That's what the word trust means. It means to attach yourself. So in this trial, in this situation, we don't fear and we don't flee and we don't run. We run to him because what's happened? We've already attached ourselves to him. For those of us that have trusted Jesus Christ as our savior, we're not clinging on to him in fear. We are attached in a relationship that's been afforded to us. Therefore, we have confidence. Therefore, we have boldness in a time like this. Therefore, we are living proof of a loving God to a watching world. So when people say, see us. They shouldn't see fear because they should see him. God is not a God of fear. He's a God of faith and of trust. So when people see us operate in the midst of a world that's gone mad, they ought to see the calmness of God, the faith of God, the trust that we have in God. And so we totally have attached ourselves to him. The other day I was driving and I had a praying mantis that attached itself to my windshield. And I was going 20 miles an hour and then 30 miles an hour. And then I got on I-45 and I was headed north and I was going 75 miles an hour. And that praying mantis 
continued to cling onto my windshield. And then an hour and a half later where I got to my destination on I-45, I got out of my car and I took the praying mantis that was attached to my windshield and I set him free. He was not clinging as if he was afraid. He was clinging as if the one he attached to was secure. And I think that's the picture of our relationship with God. That I am as secure as God is secure. And in a moment like this, when people are looking for an answer, I want to tell you what the answer is. His name is Jesus, and you are only going to be as secure as God is secure. And David said, in the Lord, I put my trust. I wonder if you would do that today. I wonder if it looks maybe different for you because maybe you're in church, but that doesn't mean you put your trust in the Lord. You can trust in a church. You can trust in a staff. You can trust in people. But that's not David's declaration. His declaration before the psalm started is, I have a basic position, and my position is one of trust, and I am clinging on to God, and therefore he is holding on to me. Therefore, I can run into the castle, and the refuge is a relationship with him. I am sheltered by his grace and his love. In the Lord, look at the text as you follow along. In the Lord, I put my trust. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? Now let's stop there. How can you say? The word you means you. That's what it means. But it could have different meanings. Some say that David, though you in this particular verse can how can you say to my soul that that was the enemy speaking to him? The reason I don't think that's accurate is because the enemy would lurk in the mountains. And if it was the enemy speaking, then for him to flee to the mountains would be to flee right into the hands of the enemy. So I don't think you as the enemy speaking here because it wouldn't make sense. And then you can say, well, well you could be um, God, because there are times when God tells us to flee. There are times when God tells us to run. There are times when we get into a situation and a place and a position, not of trust, but of flesh, and we're operating in sin, and God tells us to run. And one of the th biblical persons that God told to run was Joseph. You remember when Potiphar put her hands on Joseph, Joseph ran. So the voice that spoke to Joseph was a voice of God and he ran. And sometimes God speaks to you and he tells you to run away from the situation because when you run away from the situation, you're running to him and the situation wants to cause you to run into sin. And so you could be God here, but I don't think it is. I think when he says, how can you say to my soul, I don't even think you is his well-meaning friends. Sometimes you'll get advice from people who have no business giving you advice. And you will follow the advice of people. How can you say to my soul, could it be some well-meaning friends telling David? Listen, friends can have good sense, but that doesn't mean it's God's sense. So you've got to use the head that God gave you on your shoulders, and you've got to recognize when friends give you advice, that's one thing. It may make good sense, but that doesn't mean it's God's sense. It could be that his friends had got in the same situation that he did, and they were going to lead him down the same path that they led him down. But I don't think that's what you stands for either. Here's what I think you stands for. How can you, the text says, say to my soul, flee as a bird to the mountain? I think David was talking to David. 
Have you ever been there before? Where you talked yourself into having a pity party? And you wrapped yourself in the robe of your own righteousness and you were the only person that you were talking to and you were having a conversation with yourself and nobody else was there because you were trying to talk yourself out of the difficult situation and you were trying to talk yourself out of the trial and you were trying to talk yourself out of God conforming you into his image in the midst of the trial. Could you here be David talking to David? I think so. I think David was talking to himself. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? See, for all of us, when we face a trial, we have a tendency to run. And when we run from that which God has for us, the context of David writing this is in the context of a trial. What God was trying to do in David's life was not take him out of the trial. He was looking to see David's trust in the trial. And I believe that's exactly what God's trying to do with us. He's trying to look, not at the trial, because the trial doesn't have anything to catch him by surprise. He's sovereign over all things. But what he's looking for in the midst of the trial is he's looking at you, and he's looking at me, and he's saying, can Freeman Tomlin trust me in the midst of a trial? Can Freeman Tomlin totally depend upon me? Some of you are trusting in yourself. You're trusting in your well-meaning advisors, which are your friends. And listen, you need to go to God. You need to trust him. He is all wise. He has all knowledge. He is everywhere all the time at the same time. So I'm not worried that I'm preaching to an empty church today. I'm preaching to the church that's listening through live stream and we're the body of Christ and we don't have walls that separate us from our relationship with God. We are the temple of God. So God could be speaking directly to you today and you're trying to talk yourself out of something and God's saying, surrender to me. Put your hands up. Just praise me. Don't live in fear. Notice what the text says. When you get in a trial, a trial is oftentimes very dark. This is a very dark, this is a very dangerous time. This is a very uh, concerning time. And we are listening to those who are in authority over us. We are doing what we feel we need to do because the trial is no different than what David was facing because there's a lot of unknowns about this virus. But look what happened to David, verse two. For look, the wicked bend their bow. They make ready their arrow on the string that they may shoot secretly at the upright in heart. So it's difficult enough to go through a trial. It's difficult enough to go through a trial and to have people that are shooting at you in the dark. It's difficult to go through a trial. It's difficult to go through the darkness of a trial. It's difficult to know that someone on the other end is bending the bow and all they have to do is aim at you. So this is a picture of an enemy who's a coward. This is a picture of someone who's a sniper, who's coming after David. So when you and I face a trial, when you and I face difficult times, when we are in darkness and we can't see, I want you to know that God's light shines forth. The light of Christ He's a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And so David, even though he was in dark, and this is a picture of a coward here. And if you think about this, fear grows when your remembrance of God wanes. But David had already made a declaration at the beginning of verse one, that in the Lord, that's who I'm trusting in. So if the darkness hits me, which it is, the enemy is 
shooting arrows at me. I don't know whether to flee to the mountains. No, don't flee to the mountains. Flee to the one who's higher than the mountains. Lead me to the rock, Psalm says, that's higher than I. So David was looking for an enemy that he couldn't see. He was in the dark. The enemy was in the dark. The arrows were in the dark. And God was looking for David's trust. And that's what he does for us. In these dark times, God is wanting to know if we, as a Sagemont Church family, trust him. We trust him. We want God to use us. You know, fear causes you to run. I remember a time in my life where I was dating uh, Leslie, who's my wife now, and we were seeing a movie at Alameda Mall. And it was called The Nightmare on Elm Street. And when we saw the movie, I was, this is one of those Freddy movies, you know. And, and, and as, as the movie was playing, at the end of the movie where I would normally walk beside her and hold her hand and walk her to the car and open her door and be a gentleman because I want to tell myself I'm a gentleman. And so uh, what I did was as soon as the movie was over, I ran to the car because I lived in fear. I had saw something displayed. I had watched a movie unfold and that movie so affected me that I ran to the car. And when, when I ran to the car, I'm thinking of this text that the arrow is coming in the dark. The enemy's in the dark. Where's Freddie coming from? So I leave Leslie behind. She's coming out at the, the theater and I'm in my car. I've got the door locks and I'm, I'm going like this. Come, come. Come, oh ye of much fear. Come, come. She gets to the door and I'm still watching around. I'm looking in the back seat, making sure that Freddie hadn't slipped in. And all of a sudden, she's pounding on the window. Let me in, let me in. You know what? I lived in fear because I saw something that caused me to operate in fear. Listen, we should pray at a time like this that as if everything depends on God, and it does. Pray, 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 pray. But use precaution as if it all depends on us. And that's what we're trying to do. So we don't have to live in fear. We don't have to worry. There's so many unknowns with this virus. People don't know what to do. But here's what David says. They, they shoot secretly at the upright in heart. A person who is upright in their heart is not concerned with perfection. They're concerned with direction. A person with an upright heart is concerned with focusing on God, concerned with trusting God. And that's what we're trying to do as a church. We're, we want to have our upright hearts give us direction, not, not perfection. We know that's not going to happen. But God is concerned much more with your direction than he is your perfection. Because if you're on the right road, if you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, and you have received the forgiveness of sin, then your heart has been made upright. And when you have an upright heart, that upright heart can go in the direction that God goes. So when you attach yourself to trust in the one who gives all direction, you don't have to fear. So David says, hey, the arrows are coming. But my heart is upright toward God. Doesn't mean he's sinless. It means he's blameless. He's walking in integrity. Now look at verse 3. Here's what the text says. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The word for foundations here is a word that means the settled order of things. We know in our nation that the foundations are being destroyed. Everything that's decent, 
everything that's orderly, everything that has to deal with truth and justice and righteousness, that is all being attacked today. And in David's day, the foundations were being destroyed as well. And so here's what you have to understand about what the word foundation means. It means the settle ordered of things. In a time like this that's in a trial, a country that has in a trial, a country that doesn't know what the answer is, we have the answer. And his name is Jesus. And on his foundation, the solid rock of his life, I have put my hope in him. So I'm not fearful one thing today. And I'm going to practice precaution. And I go overboard. My wife and I have already had this conversation. But listen to me. We must trust God. And we must know what is the true foundation that God gives us. And it says here, what can the righteous do? In verse 3, we can trust God in a time like this. That's what we can do. Because God has assured us when we walk in righteousness, when we walk in truth, when we walk in the solid foundation of who he is in our life, and he's the anchor of our soul, that when we step, we will stand on solid rock and solid foundation because that's who Jesus is. And we're as secure as he is secure. And he is very secure. Now notice what David does here in verse four. He changes the scenery. He does a beautiful thing here. He said, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. Boy, that's a beautiful verse. The Lord is in his holy temple. That would be the the earthly foundation, the place of worship. So he changes the scenery and he gets us not to look at low places. He gets us to look at high places. That's what he's saying here. The Lord's throne, where is it? In heaven. In other words, the Lord is in the control tower today. He is in the midst of all that we're facing as a country, as a community, as a church. God is still in the control tower. I used to be fascinated as a kid because I would see when we would go to the airport, I would always look at the control tower and I would say, There's somebody inside that tower, or many somebody's inside that tower that are calling the shots. I want to tell you something today God is sovereign. And one of the most beautiful doctrines of the Bible that brings comfort to me and to you is the sovereignty of God. And I want you to know that God is still on his throne today. He can be on the throne of your heart by trusting him by faith, but he is on his throne in heaven and he is seated and he is totally in control and he is doing what only he can do in the midst of a crisis and that's reveal himself to people who will attach themselves to him. And so it says the Lord is in his throne. It's kind of like this. If I were to draw a line, that would represent eternity. A line would represent eternity. We're just a dot on this line. This crisis is just a dot on this line. God doesn't work for the dot. He works for eternity. He conforms us, the dot, our place and time in this world, in the midst of this coronavirus. That's the dot. But God doesn't work for the dot. He works for eternity. He's preparing us to be with him forever and forever and forever. So he's conforming the dot. He's telling me and you today, as believers in Jesus Christ, that he works for the line, that he is concerned with conforming us into his image. And so when a pilot... When you're in a plane and a pilot lands the plane, there's somebody 
in the control tower. And I don't know how they sequence it because there's many flights coming in. But when that plane lands and you unbuckle your seatbelt, you've got to acknowledge that either the pilot is loony or he's brilliant. And the question is, the, the answer is, he's brilliant. You know why? Because somebody up in the control tower is calling the shots. God's calling the shots today. He's wanting to know if we're going to be available to be used as living proof of a loving God to a watching world. The text says here, look at it, his eyes behold. The idea of the tense of the verb is his eyes are beholding. He is cutting. He is dissecting. And, and, and God is not uh, body. He's spirit. We understand this is anthropomorphic language. That's a big word. It just means that God is spirit. But, but the language here lets us see the eyes of God. The eyes of God behold. The eyes of God continue to see. The eyes of God are looking and watching. And so the eyes of God behold, they're observing, they're cutting, they're dissecting. God knows everything. Now watch this. His eyelids test the sons of men. The word for test there means to squint. When a person squints, they try to make something that is small more visible. When God squints, he's not trying to see something that he doesn't see. He's trying to show us who can't see what we need to see how big God really is. So the idea is the eyelids test the sons of men. So a trial that we're facing as a country and as individuals and whatever you're facing, it's just a test. All of life it's just a test. But here's the good news about the test. God gives us the ability to have an open book in every test that he gives us. Some of you today, for the first time in your lives, are opening up the word of God in the circumference of your family. And God is giving you an opportunity today to be a leader in your home, a lover in your home, man. Sir, a, a spiritual leader because your paths are, are so busy. And the test today is a family test. And God has so orchestrated that we, many of us, would be in the confines of our own home with our family. And don't think for a minute that God can't do something miraculous, that God can't exercise faith and trust so that you can do what only God calls you to do in the midst of that meeting. So when God squints his eyes, the eyelids of God, look at the text, test the sons of men. You know what he might be looking at today? See, God's wanting you to see something that you don't see, but he sees. Because he may see a little girl who's still angry at her father for whatever he did or didn't do. And God is squinting his eyelids to show you, not that he needs to see it, he already knows it, but he's showing you, you need to deal with that with a declaration of trust and faith. It is going to be with you to the rest of your life until you are able to deal with faith. God is showing you what it is that he needs to show you. So when the eyes of God squint, it's to make something small, big, so that we can see what God wants to do in our lives. He does it. He's a redemptive God. He loves us. Notice what the text says. Verse 5, the Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. The Lord tests the righteous. He's an examining Lord. He, it's just life is one test after another test after another test. One trial after another trial after another trial. How will I respond to the trials in my life? With trust. 
That's what God's looking for. So he tests us, not in order that we would fail the test. He's testing us so that we can pass the test, so that we can understand he's moving the dot down the line and he's working the bigger picture out in our life. I remember I had a teacher, I won't tell her, tell the name because she could be watching, but she loved to give us tests in school. We had a Scantron sheet. And all of a sudden, she would come out and say, put up all your papers, put up all your folders, we're going to have a test. And we'd have to get out the Scantron sheet. And what she would do, the person who passed out the test, we get our Scantron sheet, the person who passed out the test had the audacity to go sit down at her desk and watch those of us on the end of the test struggle. She had the audacity to give us glares. She would look at us. She would go, Mm-hmm. I knew this, yeah. And then one day she did something that I never saw her do again. She got up from her desk and she started walking the aisles. She began to walk the aisles. And I was just fixing to put something down on my Scantron. It was a test and I didn't know the answer to the test. So the teacher, who really didn't like me, and I didn't prefer her either. And I know you're more spiritual than I am, so I hope I can grow up to be like you are one day. But the lady who made the test, who gave the test, came by when I was about to put my finger on the wrong answer to the test, and she put her finger on the answer to the test. Now, let me tell you something. That's what God does. That's how much he loves us. We're struggling. We don't know what to do. We don't know how to pass the test. We don't know if we can make it. We feel like a failure. And God comes and says, listen, every test I give, you should use my open book. Every test with God is an open book. Some of you are going to have an opportunity to spend time in this trial with the Word of God open. Turn your cell phone off, turn the news off, and get with God and let God deposit His faith and His trust. Look at the text. Upon the wicked, he will rain coals, fire and brimstone and burning shall be the portion of their cup. Basically, in verses 5 and 6, he's separating uh, the righteous from the unrighteous. Those that will be judged, those that have rejected him. He doesn't hate the people, but he hates what the people do. When, when people f- uh, fly airplanes into buildings, that's, that's not a good thing. He, he, he does not approve of that. When a terrorist launches, if you could say it in Psalm 11, when a terrorist launches a, uh, an arrow in the dark, he does not approve of that. That does not represent his character. So, so God understands that in our life there are situations that feel like a terrorist situation. And so the text here says, fire and brimstone and burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. One of the translations of the word fire and brimstone is anthrax. And you remember not too long ago, people were sending anthrax spores through the mail and people were having struggles with breathing. And so that was a trial. We got past that trial to the next trial. And so what God is saying is here is he's going to put an end to it one day. Either you are with God or you are against God. That's what he's saying here. But notice what the text says. Verse 7, and I'm coming home because there's only seven verses in Psalm 11. Here's what it says. This is beautiful. For the Lord is righteous. That's his position. David's position is a position of trust. But his position of trust is in the Lord who is righteous. For the Lord is righteous and he loves righteousness. His countenance beholds the upright. 
for the Lord is righteous. The, the word righteous means to have a right standing with. Being righteous is who God is. So he's righteous. He's perfectly holy. He's on his throne. For those of us that can carry this on past David and on past the cross, we understand that there's nothing we can do to be righteous. We don't have anything to bring. We are unrighteous people. Our righteousness is as filthy rags, the Bible says. So when we recognize, and maybe you would do this today, when you recognize that you are unrighteous, that you have sinned, that you have missed the mark, and you can recognize today that God is totally righteous, he's totally in control, he's sovereign, he's totally pure, he's totally clean, and he has a 100% standard for you and me to get to heaven, and that is we must be 100% perfectly righteous like he is, and guess what? None of us are. So what we do is we confess our sin and we confess that we are unrighteous. We confess that we are unholy and we put our faith in the one who paid for all of our sins, the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect, holy, sinless, righteous son of God who paid a sin debt that he should not have had to pay but did and I owe a debt that I can never pay but God is totally righteous and if I'm ever going to get into heaven, I've got to be 100 100% righteous. And guess what? When I receive the gift of forgiveness and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and when I repent of my sin and I say, oh God, I am not trusting you. I am in the midst of a trial because of my own sin. Every time I try to run, God, I'm running from the problem, but the problem comes with me because the problem is with me. It's me. The biggest problem I have is me and my sin. God says, I have a cure. My son, Jesus, who gave his life on the cross will exchange when you ask him to come into your life, he will give you his righteousness. And then you can get into heaven, Freeman, not because you're holy and righteous, but because Jesus Christ in you has paid that perfect sin debt. And you are righteous now because your heart has been made clean. It has been washed and you now have a new life for the Lord. Look at the text for the Lord is righteous. That's who he is. That's God's position. He's in the control tower. And he loves, look at this, he loves righteousness. You know what righteousness is? Someone that receives the righteous gift of salvation. And then positionally is a person who is in Christ. But now practically, a person that loves righteousness has character and integrity in their life. That's what we need to have in this world. He loves righteousness. Righteousness is a life of integrity. It's a life of character. It's character before men. It's integrity before God. So I live my life externally according to God's standard, which is righteousness. But for many of us, the problem is we set our standards by watching other people. And we say, oh, we're cleaner than someone else. Listen, because their hands are dirty doesn't make your hands any cleaner. You see, all of our hands are dirty, so nobody gets clean if the standard of righteousness is set by the standard of other people. The standard of righteousness is set by God himself, and God can give you a pure heart, clean hands, and a pure heart, the text says. So we have to face it. It doesn't matter if I can jump 10 feet and you can jump 20 feet. If we're both jumping across the Grand Canyon, we're both in trouble. We have to come to a position that the Lord is righteous and he loves righteousness. Therefore, he loves me and my sin and he wants to give me brand new 
life so that I can experience his power in my life. Let me close with this. When I went off to college at East Texas Baptist University, I brought this big box of Tide. Everybody in my dorm had a big box of Tide. And we, went, we, we never used the Tide. Why would, we, why would we wash clothes when we go off to school? When we could go visit our mamas and we could go home and they could wash our clothes, we put it in a garbage bag. Now there's a sovereign thought. But we had a big box of Tide. But then they came out with something that was called a concentrate Tide. It was in a little bitty bottle. And they said, all the power that you can have in this big box can be concentrated and you can have it in this little bottle right here. And so we went from big box to little box because the little box was concentrated power. Now listen, I'll close with this. In Jesus Christ, God wants to give you himself through the Lord Jesus Christ so that when you receive the free gift of salvation and you confess your sins and you cry out to God, listen to me, he concentrates his power in your life. He gives you all of himself. He's on the throne in heaven, but he deposits concentrated power in your life because when you repent of your sin and you turn to Jesus Christ, he concentrates on you. He wants to see your trust. He wants to see you succeed. He wants to see you do all that he wants you to do. And the only way that you can be all that God wants you to be is if he concentrates his power in your life and all you have to do is receive it. Some of you are watching by live stream. You've never received the power of Jesus Christ in your life. And I want to give you an opportunity to do that. Some of you need to bow your knee. You're thinking somebody else needs to bow their knee. You need to bow your knee where you are and say, Lord Jesus Christ, I need you in my life. My hands are dirty my heart is dirty. There's no clean hands. There's no pure heart because there's never been a manifestation of your presence and your power in my life. Listen, you can change that today by trusting Jesus as your Savior. He'll wash all of your sin out of your heart. He'll take your dirty heart. He'll scrub it. He'll put concentrated power, resurrection power, the Holy Spirit power in your life. And you don't have to fear the coronavirus. You didn't have to fear Harvey. You don't have to fear the next trial that you face. Because once you belong to Jesus, on that dot where your life is on that line of eternity, he's got you all the way through. And he loves you.